video, so we can oh. go we could go totally video off. It's just audio only. So that's oh. uh, okay. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. So so cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, really interesting. I'm really excited. Uh, we this is a spirituality podcast. We talk about network spirituality. We talk about hallucinogens. We talk about uh, gardening and botany and all kinds of things. So that's uh, that's kind of the theme. Okay, great. I'm ready when you guys are. Okay, cool. Well, I'll just introduce you. This is uh, today uh, Ketamine Patrol with Sierra. Say hello, Sierra. Hello. So uh, how are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, man. I just got off the, the Peloton and I took a cold shower, but I'm still pretty sweaty. So fortunately, we don't have video. I'm looking like I got out of a sauna. How are you guys? <laughs> doing great. Uh, doing really well. So, um, yeah. So uh, I hear that you're, you're big into spirituality these days. Well, I mean, I always have been probably into spirituality. That was where my first real blockbuster book was Brilla Mindset, which was a shallower look at spirituality, shallow not as in not comprehensive, but it was focused mainly on the biological mechanisms that people can understand and relate to. And then I always promised people, I said, I'll go esoteric. But right now, if I went esoteric, then that would be used to like completely destroy me, you know, more than more than people have tried before. So I had to wait until the times move because I always like to be a little bit ahead of the time to where I'm pushing the vanguard, but not so far ahead of the time that they try to, you know, 5150 me or something and say, oh, you know, this guy's, you know, completely insane, which is, by the way, they, tr- by the way, they, they say I'm insane, which is pretty funny when you figure that I'm like 43, attractive wife who like had a job before we met. So it's not like, it's not like a sugar baby situation you know like she had her own money and like i live the most functional stable life in the world but then people on the internet would be like oh my god you know he's lost his mind he's done ayahuasca one you know one too many times holy shit like he's really gone this time meanwhile that those people their lives are like a fucking mess right so it's this weird you know duality of oh cerno is x y and z and you're like well I don't know. I mean, today I watered my box garden, went to Home Depot with my daughters, like pretty, pretty like low key life, dude. Meanwhile, you know, what would you do all day? You know, mad on the Internet. That's kind of your life. So who's really the crazy person and who isn't? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. We're, we're kind of uh, we're kind of in that schizoed out, schizzed up, chopped van, vaguely schizophrenic. I had one guy uh, uh, tell me on a video, he was like, why do people say this is profound? This is just a schizophrenic guy. But no, I see what you're saying. This sort of you kind of have to expand the the framework so that you can then go more esoteric down the line. I like that, you know. Yeah, you have to push it, and I'm sure. Yeah, people always say crazy this, crazy that, and then it's like, show me who you are, though, right? That that's where I guess my I have this weird sort of connection to you know, spirituality and plants, because that's traditionally considered a very namaste. Oh, you, you go do ayahuasca. Now you wear tie dyed shirts and talk about love and smoke weed or something. And, and meanwhile, I'm like, fuck you, pussy, you know, who the fuck are you to say anything to me kind of vibe. And so I, I get that way a little bit where people try to demean, 
you know, the plant medicine and the spirituality. And I'm like, well, motherfucker, I'm just, I've done more than you. You know, you don't get to say shit to me because I've just done more than you on this realm, this earthly planet realm, this status realm, this bullshit. You know, I've gone to law school. I'm a lawyer. I did a book. I did a movie, blah, 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 you know, which even though the deeper you get into spirituality, you realize that stuff doesn't matter that much. But when people do try to attack or denigrate the, the plant space or the antigen space, I think, well, if you want to play it that way, we can, you know, pull our, you know, what's out and we can kind of measure accomplishments, right? We can just do that. And then, of course, they sort of go away and don't have, don't have a whole lot to say. So I think that's, in a way, my, because, you know, there's all these contributions, right? Everybody in the world, that's what you learn from the plants. We're all connected. We are one, but we're separate. And we balance our ego and our need to survive with not losing connection to each other, not getting caught up in hatred and negativity, you know, so it's always this balance and everybody offers something. And I always think that in terms of the, the plant space, I kind of, the contribution I offer is the guy who's like kind of an asshole, right. But can go code switch from like, do you want to be aggro or do you want to, you know, be loving and kind and compassionate? You can sort of pick what, what channel you want to go on. And I'd rather go on the channel of understanding and harmony, but if we, we can turn, we can turn the channel and, and maybe you wouldn't like that. So let's just stick on the love vibration. No, I like that. You just perfectly described the vibe shift and network spirituality, you know, which is this, the idea that we're all somehow one, we're all connected, you know, the, the egregores that we spawn are not things that we can even know, you know, and I think a lot about um, doxing and stuff like that. People, they want to demystify uh, certain projects or characters online or get them banned. But, you know, you can't really stop that energy because there are synchronicities with these energies that happen online. They happen in the real world. They happen in nature that you just you simply cannot stop like this. There is vibes are, are very real. So d- it, what do you think of, of, of vibes? Well, the network brain, I read a great book, The Global Brain before, you know, because I've been into plant medicine for a long time. And I always change dates just so people can't try to figure, you know, figure out anything. I'm just like, look, number of years, over decades, how many times, enough times to know. And, you know, because I don't want people to ever triangulate because, like you said, there's a lot of people who want to discredit this work. And one of the books I'd read, The Global Brain, talks about like our network brain, how all brains are connected in a way, sending off energy to each other in a different way. And we've all seen it. You use the word synchronicity, which other people would call confirmation bias or to dismiss it. Well, you're not synchronized. You just looked for it and then you saw it and like, yeah, we know all this stuff. You know, it's like we, we, we know all this stuff and we, you know, we know what you're going to say and that's what you're going to say. But there's too much happens that becomes almost like magic, both good and bad. I mean, I've had the most one of the most bizarre synchronicities in my life was I was in New York living there at the time with, I guess she would have been my girlfriend at the time. Um, and I was like, you know, I really would like to meet this guy one day. And that was that we walked home from dinner. We go through union square and sitting at the chess, ca- chess table was that guy that I literally just said at dinner, you know, I like this guy's stuff. I'd like to, you know, meet this guy one day, you know, maybe I will. And I walked, I go, wait, what? Is that James? You know, it was the guy's James. What? 
And it turns out he was on a first date. And so then I like, oh, so then he was like the big man on campus, right? Because he was, he's kind of a nerdier guy, right? And, you know, Sean is attractive. You know, I was a little younger than a little more attractive than I am now. And so he was kind of like the big man on campus. And it was, you know, so first date, and it was just completely bizarre because that was, so some people could just say, well, that was a coincidence. It's a city, blah, blah, blah. But I've had so many things happen like that way, you know, way beyond the realm of coincidence or confirmation bias. That there's definitely a deeper connection or a deeper energy at work. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, I, uh, some people call that gestel, some call it confirmation bias. There are so many, uh, unexplained mysteries that, oh, I don't know if we lost you for a second. Let me see. Oh, are you there? Oh, uh, you okay. Froze for us yeah. For you froze for, for a second. Are you, are you still here? Okay. Yep. Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. Okay, you, you locked right. up. You said some people call it. Yeah. Some people call it Gestell. They call it framing confirmation bias, but I'm really into this idea of just being able to connect with that whole and sort of lose or synthesize yourself and sort of like, just let go of, uh, all of these parameters of the ego and the id. And, and I really believe in plant-based, uh, medicine as well. Um, just, just for that, just to sort of the way the shamans, they break up the ontology of the tribesmen. You, you have to do that. And, and for me, like, uh, you know, ketamine, I think is a good disassociative. I don't know. Have you ever tried ketamine before? No, ketamine I know is the kind of the it thing right now, but I've, I've gotten so many, so much results from other things that I sort of stuck with what I know. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Like what? So what do you notice from ketamine? Oh, what? Sorry about that. What do you guys notice in ketamine? Oh, well, uh, I notice, uh, that time starts to sort of, you know, become this kind of like murky gravy and you get fully disassociated. Like the first time I did it, I was at a rave and I just, I just was hearing the DJ and the music and my body was completely dis, like distant almost. I could almost see like an outside version of the sound, you know, kind of spinning around my body. And it was this kind of really strange situation. But if you want to know my like less esoteric take on it, it just feels like you took acid and drank like a 12 pack of beers. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of what it feels like to me, which is a good feeling. So how do you use the medicines? Do you do, do you use it socially? Do you use it integratively by yourself? Well, I mostly use it by myself. I just take the little tiny mushroom capsules or I'll take, mm-hmm. you know, microdosing acid, you know, once in a blue moon. That's basically it. Uh, but for me, it's the little mushroom caps and then, you know, smoke weed just, you know, because it's a stressful world. It's hard to get shit done. You know, it's it's not satanic to just sort of like, take a supplement that's fully natural that, you know, helps you just calm down. It helps chill you out. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. See, that's where you energetically, because, you know, if you, if you look at the medicine wheels of plants in a way, like energetically, you might want to look at Iboga or something that has a, a more harsher element. Cause what I found out with plants and in dealing with, you know, a number of people who do them is for some people, they need more feminine plants. So people who have a lot of like toxic masculinity, which is kind of real. I mean, it gets blamed unfairly, but I just call it unintegrated or shadow masculinity, right? Mm. The whole, 
you know, swinging dick thing. Look at me. I'm so tough, <laughs> which, you, you know, it's good to be tough. Don't get me wrong. I like that. But, you know, too much of that's unintegrated. So with, with those people, I think some feminine medicines are good to balance out. And then I think for other people who are maybe a little, a little too chill or a little too mellow, Iboga, I think is, is good because that's a very masculine medicine, a very jarring and harsh medicine. Have you tried San Pedro? Uh, no, I have not. I've, I've done peyote. I've done, you know, ayahuasca and uh, DMT. DMT is not plant-based, obviously, but uh, I've done those. Uh, and, you know, I liked them. I really did. But for some reason, I don't think they worked right on me. I don't think I was, I, I was sort of like mentally in the right place when I tried it. Well, I think it's because you're already kind of a mellower guy. And yeah. I think, you, you know, you might want to look at some of the plants that like iboga or something that is going to be a little more harsh because when a lot of people talk about iboga, they talk about it being very almost like mean. It's like a, it has a reputation in a way. Oh, it's I like kind of that. Mean, kind of mean. So I think that if you're a little more already mellowed out like you, maybe you need a little bit more of that medicine to be a little more aggressive on this world, right? Because that's the, you know, we're traveling two realms, this world which can be stressful and it can be hectic and it can be, you know, everything that it is. And you need that assertive, powerful gorilla energy for this world. But then, but then if that's all you have, you miss out on authenticity, connection, vulnerability, love. You don't have an open heart. So, but, so you, I think it's good that, 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 anyway, that's what I've learned from the medicine is I think that it's, good to have both. And I, and I think that you do, if your nature is more mellow, you might want to look at other medicines. And then if your nature is already more sort of aggressive or aggro, then, you know, something like ayahuasca, a humbling feminine medicine is maybe the issue. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I tend to wear different masks depending on the situation that I'm in. So sometimes I people said I'm very aggressive and very type A. And sometimes people have said, oh, you're incredibly mellow and shy and aloof. So, it, you know, it really just sort of it's it's situation dependent. Uh, but definitely since, you know, uh, moving out outside of California, I feel a lot more chilled out here in Texas. So, yeah, Sierra, do you have any questions for, for Mike? Uh, oh, she prepared I, a bunch of stuff. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where to start exactly. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I just noticed, like, all the, the media outlets are, like, calling you, like, right wing, even though, like, you, you like kind of directly denied being right wing um, and you it seems like you don't really come off as a conservative at, at all but like are you like post-political in a way or do you just like believe in defying like all labels like, I well I don't want to act like I defy all labels because I'm an old man so maybe when I was in college I would be like man I can't no, no labels apply to me man I'm too bold for all of that what, what happens with the media and the narrative, and I talk about this in my movie Hoax, is that if, if you can create a narrative about anyone. So I could watch a couple of your podcasts together, get clips of you maybe bickering a little bit, and then I could say, oh, they have this podcast and all they do is treat each other like shit, and they argue <laughs> and they hate each other and they have a terrible relationship. And I could put together like five clips. And if 
And if the only encounter someone had was with those five clips, they would be like, holy shit, those, those people hate each other. And that's ultimately what creating a narrative is. And it's about editing a few things together and treating that like that's the totality of the person. And that's what the media does if they view you, uh, if they just don't like you. A lot of these grudges mm-hmm. are just honestly personal. Yeah, it's crazy. It seems like they they all don't like you. <laughs> well, they, they don't the like media. me and they're obsessed, which is yeah, also that I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to me, like I've had some of these people, like one time I had a guy text me and it was the dumbest thing in the world and I was on the couch with my daughter's watching Room on the Broom so I didn't have my phone on me. And then once the movie's over, I put my girls to bed, I get my phone. And then I got a bunch of angry, t- you're dodging me, you're hiding from me. And I thought, it's midnight, your time. I just put my daughters to bed after watching Room on the Broom. This is your life, bro. And I've even said that. I go, I've never in my life felt more pity for someone than I do right now that you have no love in your life. That it's midnight and you're mad at me because you think I'm dodging your calls, even though I don't, I, my phone wasn't on. And even then there was nothing to dodge because it was a, it was a dumb thing anyway. So there's a lot of, just people working out their like daddy issues on me, a, a <laughs> lot of it. So there is like men who maybe didn't like their dad or they view their dad as a certain, like a caricature. Then they attack me as a way to like lashing out. There's so much of that because psychologically it doesn't make sense to me. I don't, in a given day, I don't sit around thinking about these people. And people on Twitter will say, people on Twitter will send me, oh, have you seen what this guy said about you today? I was like, no, because I don't name search. I don't Google name. I don't care. I don't even know what's going on <laughs> with these people. And then occasionally I'll be like, fine, I'll look at what they're saying. And I'm like, what? You know, and there'll be like 15 articles about me the last week. I was like, and they're all dumb. And, and they're really like, you just, if you actually read behind the headlines, you're just like, this is dumb. I'm like, what, what is it? It's like I tweeted something. You know, so you're a journalist on my tweets. That's what you do is here's a here's a tweet. I tweet 100 times a day and you find one out of 500 that maybe has a dodgy interpretation. That's, you know, that's journalism. It's, it really is absurd. And if I were more egotistical, I would feel pretty like important. Like, oh, I've been profiled in the New York Times. And it, it just it's just dumb. You look around and you think, how dumb is the world? that my tweets are a matter of journalistic import, <laughs> right? It's just dumb. Yeah, I, I guess because journalists don't create any, they don't have any real good content to bring to the table. I don't know. They just are obsessed with your tweets. I don't know. Well, they have to churn. It's, you know, and you, you guys will find this as you podcast and stuff is, in their world, they have to kind of churn something out every day. Like they have to have something mm-hmm. in the pipeline. So, and to break a real story, a significant story, Julius, come here. I know what you're trying to do. You're going to bark at the dog. Come here. So to find a real story that might take months, right? Yep. But so you can't just not do anything for months. You have to feed the machine, feed yeah. the advertising machine, get clicks. So then anybody who has like a quote unquote name, you know, okay, if, I can spend half an hour writing about Mike Cernovich and I can get, I don't know, 
10,000 clicks, 50,000 clicks, maybe if you're really lucky, 100,000 clicks, you know? Okay, that's, there's, you know, yeah, it's like- a few hundred bucks in advertising revenue. I've made my salary for the day, and then tomorrow I'll go find, you know, somebody else's tweets to write about, and then I'll come back to Cernovich in two weeks. So it's mainly that. They just have to get, there's a name and there's a click. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. You're just like, oh, okay, so it'll say so-and-so blank, 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 blank. And that's the template. It's, it really is. It really is yeah. dumb. It's low tier. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. Very low. Vi- really. Yeah. Low vibrational. Yeah. It's kind of like dollar cost average, but for neoliberal attention, it's a, uh, you know, it, it's the, that sort of algorithmic machine. It, you know, it really sets everything into precedent and it's something that people, you know, we can't, we can't really fight against it. Uh, the, it's almost like the way that I feel like we do is we just, or at least what we do is we just kind of shoot all this esoteric art and text into like sub stacks. And there's this whole sort of like movement of people doing that, getting like really sort of cryptic because, you know, we are in a, in sort of like an unprecedented time of, of a suppression of a kind of artistic and personal expression. And, you know, we're complete, you know, uh, free speech absolutist to like the maximum. And, you know, you said something I thought very interesting that we actually agree with. You're like, I'm a, li- I'm a social libertarian to the point of libertine. And I, I, we, we are both fans of the kind of, uh, Bataille French disgusting libertine, uh, mindset. So, and you lived in Paris too, which I think is, uh, is funny as well. Well, I lived in Paris because, and, and this goes back to mindset and spirituality, is when you're, how you guys are like, what, early 20s, mid-20s? Okay, yeah. Oh, anyways, so you guys are younger than me. But, and, you know, you'd read paper books and there'd always be like a preface and it would be the little thing you'd write to your book, your forward or whatever the case is. And you would sign the city you're in and it'd always be like Paris, San Francisco, New York, right? Those were the the culture. So I think it was just imprinted in my brain. Okay. I want to live in San Francisco, New York and Paris at one point in my life. And, and I did, uh, San Francisco before the decline was not overrated. It was a paradise, New York, you know, honestly, kind of overrated. I, I, I get why people like it. You can get out at night and do anything and everything, but unless you're really like on the prowl trying to hook up with a lot of people, Take, like take away hookup culture, there there isn't much there of food. I mean, everywhere everywhere's got good restaurants, right? If people missed the the whole gastro revolution, uh, Paris was pretty great in 2015. I've, I haven't been back since then, but it was nice. San Sebastian, also very nice. Probably my favorite favorite place, San Sebastian. Did you go clubbing there? You know, Shauna insisted one time to go clubbing in Paris, so we went. And it was, you know, it was a club. It was not, you know, I get for a club, I guess it was okay. But we used to, when we were first started dating, we party pretty hard Cabo, Vegas and everything. So for me, clubbing, it's like, I've, you know, I'd rather go to a beach club in Cabo and do MDMA (laughs) than go to some like shitty skeezy nightclub with like date rapists everywhere and then (laughs) vampires hiding in the corners and you don't even know what people look like and what, you know, what you're going to catch or get slipped in your drink. So I always liked when, when I partied, I was all about the pool party vibe. It's daylight. There's, you know, you cannot hide, can't hide yourself. Other people can't really hide. 
we so we had a lot of fun. Cabo Cabo was great. Nikki Beach and Cabo was great. Then they had the hurricane. I think it's good again now though. I think people are going back. Play at Del Carmen's big now. Yeah. So uh what it so have you sort of like changed? I know that, you know, a lot of these outlets they kind of miss they kind of mischaracterize you. They say certain things about you and what you've said about date rape, because you brought up the date rapists in New York City on the prowl. Uh, so has that is that sort of changed for you? I mean, uh, well, they well, I was what I would satirize. And yeah, then they, exactly. So that's what they do is they satirize what you say. But until you've seen it happen to other people, it's kind of like we're all an AI or we're all kind of like software. And then you see what happens to other people and you're like, okay, so yeah, the way it used to be is, you know, you used to be able to do satire and then <laughs> you can't anymore unless no. you satirize it to the point that it's absurd. Right. So you used to be able to do satire. And then what they would do is, Oh, so-and-so advocated that you're like, no, here's the article that it was satir- satirizing. Does, you know, doesn't matter. That becomes kind of the narrative. So what we've seen now is, just look at Twitter. There's no, the only good Twitter, the only way you can do satire now is you have to go so over the top vulgar that people aren't sure, like post irony Twitter, I guess is what you call it, where people aren't really sure if it's real or not. People aren't sure if it's sincere or not. It sounds too bizarro over the top, but you can't do biting satire. You can't, because because if you, if it doesn't land you're done, right? You're, you're sort of, it's sort of over for you. So you, you can't try to really get to that line and find that, that perfect approach where it bites a little bit and you, you kind of pause. What, what is this? You have to go completely over the top or you get into my case where I just don't even, you know, I've like a, a comedian friend told me one day, he's like, do you make your money as a comedian? I go, no, he goes, and quit trying to be funny. And I said, you know what? That's really good life advice. So I don't, I don't crack jokes anymore. I haven't probably since 2015, maybe. And I, and I, and I tell people the same thing. It's like, do you make your money as a comedian or being funny? No. Okay. Then sorry, you don't get to make jokes anymore. (laughs) No, I like that. That's, you know, it's really interesting that you bring all of that up because you, you bring up post irony Twitter. And I think we kind of get lumped into the whole post irony category, but you know, as the, this sort of like, uh, times and uh, they they progress. It's almost like the boundary between sincerity and irony gets more and more exploded. And, and the same thing with like uh, based and cringe and all of these dichotomies like left and right, like they don't really mean the same thing anymore. And I've listened to you speak a, a decent amount politically and I'm like, you know, this guy, he sounds more left wing than like the Democrats. I, I mean, seriously, to me, but nobody, but you know, the perception of things is is somehow, you know, ingrained in the sort of like liberal, they're sort of like their brains can't process any sort of semblance of nuance because they need some sort of like consensus, Procrustean, scientific, uh, you know, explanation for things that are even completely non-logical by their own standard. Yeah. So that's a, it's a weird intersection of sort of hipsterism and also the Reddit that you got a, you got a source for that. Right. And then you give somebody a source and then they're like, well, that source is not credible for X, Y, and Z. And then you're like, no, here's 10 sources that it's the way that people think they're smart 
So this happened, you know, I kind of blame the skeptic people, the atheist people, and then they got all weird with Atheism Plus, the Richard Dawkins, Michael Shermer. Yeah. I blame them because it intersected with this hipsterism where it's like cool to not love, right? Loving people is like cringe. Oh, you're in love. Oh, you talk about authenticity. No, love is just a chemical reaction. You're like, I'm so, I'm so fucking above all that. You know, give me, give me my little cigarette. And, you know, I read Nietzsche one time and I'm on Reddit and love is just a chemical reaction. It's just like a little bit of dopamine and I'm not going to be vulnerable and I'm not going to be authentic and I'm not going to express myself and I'm not going to welcome others into me. And we're going to live in this bizarre realm of creating all these massive amounts of barriers. And to them, yeah, nothing is real because they've reduced the the reductionists. They've reduced, you know, human humanity. They've reduced it to like the smallest level, but they're also Michael Malice calls them midwits. I think that's his term or someone came up with it where they're not that smart though, because if you read like really complicated works on, you know, Godel Escherbach is the big one where you talk about recursive processes or you talk about like reductionism is you can't look at a system by looking at just one little part of the system. Yeah. You get, you drill down to the smallest part and then you're at the very top again, right? Just like traffic. The, like one of the metaphors you use is, you know, if you're in a car, you're in traffic and you're just the car. Well, if all somebody did was looked at your car, that wouldn't tell them anything about traffic. It would just be a little blot on the line kind of moving, but there's an actual thing called traffic patterns that you can study. And there's a certain, whatever vibe to it, some kind of epiphenomenon, a logical effect to it, something, but traffic is different from the car, even though traffic is comprised of the car. So that's where the midwits always lose a plot is they can't be comfortable with what seems like a paradox or what seems like a contradiction, which is that you can't just look at like one source and be like, Oh, okay. That something's true or false has been falsified or not. You have to look at a lot of sources and realize a lot of sources contradict themselves, contradict each other, and sort of find the vibe, right? Find the, the bigger picture. Like, what is, you know, yeah. here's five cars, here's what they're doing. Therefore, that should tell me that traffic. No, you have to look at the whole totality of everything. And they don't, I don't know if they don't have the intellectual capacity to it. There's probably something to it, the curiosity. And then just the, a lot of it is honestly just people are afraid to admit that there's a lot they don't know and they would rather be certain that something can't be real than lean into the unknown. So I always tell people, for example, I always read that ayahuasca is a hallucinogen. It's a hallucinogen. Um, explain that to me because if I ingest it, I see a lot of things that I don't see when I'm opening my eyes in this real world and I'm inventing them or I'm connected to the, the universe. It's not hallucinate, hallucination. That doesn't make any kind of sense because you're claiming I'm seeing something that's not real. Well, how do you know that's not real? Yeah. It's a hallucination. It's a hallucinogen. How do you know that it's just not a different spectrum of reality that we can, well, because, well, I mean, you can't, you know, you have to use a microscope. And that's what I mean. It's like these people, are, they're just dumb in a way where you're like, well, because I used to be more patient. I was like, well, do you believe there's a micro, do you believe bacteria exists? Well, yeah, duh, you know. Well, can you see bacteria? Here's my hand, you know, or do you need a microscope and you have a slide and there's a whole process? Or did you know that we only see a certain spectrum of light? You know, go turn on your hose out in the sun. Now suddenly you can see like the rainbow. So then, you know, why is it that you can tell me that I'm hallucinating 
if I'm on ayahuasca? How do you know that I haven't opened up a portal to the universe? Or how do you know that I just haven't gone really deep in my own mind, which I'm at the point where it just doesn't matter to me whether I'm entering the universe or whether there's no disconnect between the universe and my own mind. I don't know. I just know that the things I see, I could never come up in a million years. Like I, I wish, you know, I wish that I could just sit down and come up with these kind of like flash insights into the world, into my own relationships, into myself. I can't, I've discovered things that I've never thought of that people I've never read anywhere. I don't know where that's coming from the universe deep in my own. I don't know, but I'm comfortable with not knowing I'm comfortable with just saying, Hey man, I don't know, but I do know that it's a hallucinogen. How do you know it's a hallucinogen? Prove prove to me it's a hallucinogen. Well, I I can't see what you see. Oh, okay. Well, I can't. And then you go, well, I can't see your consciousness, you know? And then you can get into like the zombie problem of consciousness. We're like, well, how do you know that I'm caught? that I'm not just a really smart robot, you know, who can pass the Turing test. Are how do you mon- these are you see my consciousness. Yeah. yeah. So the whole d- dismissing the spirituality thing when people do it is to me, it's a glib and super, that's why I block them all on Twitter. I just say, you're dumb. I don't, cause, cause it's like, you are, you're just, you're dumb. You haven't read the books. You haven't thought about these things with any kind of complexity. You probably don't know who Wittgenstein is. You probably don't know like, Oh, there's oh, a deal in the box. You don't know any of that shit, right? But then you're going to tell me that I'm hallucinating when you don't know shit. And that is the, that's a metaphor for everything. That's the media people. Oh yeah. I know who Mike Cernovich is. You read a couple of tweets. That's the totality. You know, that's the totality of like who I am. No, you're just, you're an idiot. You don't know anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, there is an overlap. Yeah. No, it's, it's totally true. I, I, you see a lot of people who think that they have total access to all transcendental structures of reality, but they don't even understand like the basic framework that informs or, you know, sort of unifies their worldview in any way. And they sort of see themselves as you were, as you were saying earlier, as not nodes in this greater sort of like cosmological sphere, but actually as like individual agents that have their own opinions that can pick everything up, that know what's beyond all epochs. And I think that that is a really sort of strange, you know, we got a lot of that from, from Hegel and, and you were actually describing a very Kantian perspective, which is that maybe we don't understand the, the sort of like transcendental nature of things. Maybe there are things that we don't know. Maybe there is no way to understand like the epigenesis of the imprint that my brain um, can conceive and perceive of, into this world. And, but, but there is something like really, I think, beautiful and embracing that. And just on a personal level, um, embracing that sort of mentality has helped me incredibly. So okay. I, oh yeah, wait, you were gonna oh, say? I just, I just have a very, a sort of like off-topic question. But I was wondering, have you ever heard of? Um, are you aware of Lindy Man, or also known as Paul Scalis? Oh, the Lindy, the Lindy Man account. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm aware of that. Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering if if you have any opinions on him. I don't know why. He he again occupies an interesting space where he is he has kind of a message, but he's masked his message in rhetoric that you don't really understand what his message is, right? The whole like Lindy effect. Is that Lindy? Is that not Lindy? And I think he does a good job, but he strikes me as a 
uh, I don't, I, I like to use positive language about people. It, it strikes me as a critique of the corporate drone life and the corporate drone mindset in a way that's artistic and fun. You know, post office space, you know, office space was the film, you know, ca- kind of capturing that. I love that movie. Yeah. That life, right? Yeah. And he's maybe the the next iteration of that. Yeah, definitely. I see that. Yeah, I, don't, I see his whole thing. I don't know. I think it is like deeply ironic, but um, I don't know. It's all like he's like kind of like a joke, like fake philosopher, but it's very funny to me. Um, that the New York Times and everyone who reads it is taking him really seriously. It's just, I don't know, it's like the one of the funniest things to happen recently. Yeah, well, he did, there's him and then there's Bronze Age. I mean, I even though they're, they're different topics, but mm-hmm. they're part of that whole same genre, which is, again, because you watch people get their heads cut off and then you learn to modulate your message a little bit. Or even, you know, maybe we just never learned from Lenny Bruce, which he said, if you're going to be offensive, you have to make people laugh about it Mm. and you have to be, you know, maybe funnier about it. And I think that's a lesson that got skipped. And then people learn and you watch other people sort of get quote unquote canceled or whatever. And yeah, you wrap up your message in irony, but you also wrap up your message in irony and sarcasm out of a fear of true vulnerability. There's, There's just a lot of people who have despair and rather than look at that despair interrogate it find out where it came from find out how to get out of this black hole they they pretend they don't happen or they wrap it up in smart snark i mean you see it all the time with like the rise of sarcasm uh oh i hate this i hate this place i remember when sarcasm hit i was like hey because they were liberal i was hanging out with these liberals and like Ugh. I hate this place. And I was like, well, why do we, you know, why are we here? And then I realized, oh no, they mean like the opposite of like what they're saying. And everything was like that. And it's kind of like just low brow and low IQ. But then when I interrogated it more extensively, I realized they were vapid people living vapid lives, the cardboard cutout. Oh, I'm making 150,000 a year. My man's making 250,000 a year. And here's where we go on our trips to, and here's what we post to. And here's the trappings of our success. And, you know, we don't go to Ikea anymore. We go somewhere else and we have like a loft and they're just like caricatures of a human being. And there's no soul to them. There's no blood. There's no like blood to them. And there is a lot of that with the, the highest practitioners have a lot of soul and an irony Twitter, but a lot of people into that are themselves afraid to admit that they have a little bit of despair, that their life maybe isn't the way they want it to be and fix your life. I mean, that's what my whole mindset work was all about was we all, we've all felt that way about everything. I mean, I've been in rooms of people where we're talking the, the, King alphas, you know, we're talking people that when you play video game, these are the people, everybody feels inadequate. Everybody in the room, you could find a guy, but, but nobody really talks about it. And that perpetuates these cycles because nobody wants to talk about if you're a a quote unquote strong man or alpha man or whatever terminology people want to use, you, nobody wants to talk about how they feel inadequate sometimes. Nobody wants to talk about any kind of vulnerability Nobody wants to talk about love and losing love and finding love and, and how it's different. You have to be like a caricature. That's it's probably always been this way, but you have to fit like a caricature. Here I am. I'm this man. This is all I can talk about. 
you, you know, you can talk about love, you can talk about poetry, you can talk about something else, but this is all like you're allowed to talk about. And I dealt with that, a lot of that with my own, you know, audience followers. They're like, well, I follow you for media. Fuck you. So what? <laughs> you know, you're going to read all kinds of fucking, you know, you're going to read everything. What I'm, I'm on, they think that there's like, I'm turning the channel and you're a human being. No, you're not a human being. I'm turning the channel onto you and you're not a human being. You're allowed to talk about this. And then that's how people live their lives. There's no full authentic expression of self. So then rather than admit that they're not living that way, even though I, in a way I hate the term authenticity, but it sticks and applies, you get into all that irony. I don't really like anything too much because I don't have to commit too much because I don't have to lean in because if I don't lean in anything, then I can never really be hurt that bad. So I'll never, the trade most people make is I'll never really love fully and have real passion and real soul and my life and real joy, sublime joy, but I'll never really hurt that bad either. I'll just be kind of numb, a little bit dull, float through life a little bit, gray, no, no colors, no, no real pain, no real highs, and just kind of die. Ah, fuck that. <laughs> yeah, so, so irony is for cowards, I guess, in a way. Um, I don't well, know. If I were tweeting, I would. If, if I were trying to be provocative, tweet and get a conversation going. I would say that irony and sarcasm are passive aggressive and beta. And they're used by people who <laughs> Not wrong. I, yeah. I mean that's why I'm good at Twitter. You know, I, I would I would I would wrap it up in a wrap it up in a package that would in, inspire a conversation. Yeah. But there yeah. I would just say that people use irony to hide from their own existential doubt. It's a sedative. Right. Um, do you think irony and sarcasm are like a particularly like millennial thing? And what like what do you think of like the millennial generation in general? Because they yet everyone describes them as being very like narcissistic and self centered. And I don't know, like I see that kind of like in guerrilla mindset almost has kind of um like a a millennial like vibe because it's like about I don't know. You talk about like um having your own brand, stuff like that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I was a pioneer. Everybody talks about personal branding now. <laughs> Go look at the data gorilla mindset. You know, it's it's more relevant now. I Millennials, I think, get a bad rap because the, the idea that they're a monolith is always sort of silly. The idea that they're more narcissistic than boomers. Like how many more documentaries on Woodstock do I need to watch? And it's like, oh, wow. So you went to Woodstock when you were 21 and now you're 70 and you're still kind of talking about Woodstock. Good, you know, go chief, you know, good job, buddy. Oh, but yeah, these millennials are, are so narcissistic, right? I think everybody has always been narcissistic as a generation. I think you have to, or you can't survive. There's again, that's where spirituality adds a layer to it where if your ego dissolves in a state of transcendence with God, that's a beautiful experience. But if you don't come out of that K-hole, you're going to starve to death and, and rot, right? So so there, you have to live in this world. You have to live in a planet. And you have to believe yourself in yourself. And you have to believe that what you're doing is matters because that's what wakes you up and that's what pushes you forward. And that's what makes you strive. And striving is good. And that's what helps drive you. But then if that's all you do, you, you know, you, you, you come on the other side of that where you become a caricature of a, a, you know, the type A striver, the Don Draper of the world. 
So Don Draper was a narcissist, but if you look at the, the show, that was set in the 50s, right? So the idea that millennials are somehow inherently narcissistic, I think, is just because it sounds like a cute thing to say that makes older people feel smarter, superior. But if you look at literature, you look at shows, you look at cinema, people have always wanted to be beautiful. You know, we're, I got my wife on a classic film kick and Henry, you know, we're, we just watched My Fair Lady last night. We're watching new ones all the time. And people have always wanted to be beautiful. People have always wanted to be respected. People have always wanted to have significance in life. This has never changed. How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think that was published in 1911. So that wouldn't even be Boomer. That would be like Greatest Generation or Pre-Greatest Generation. You go back to, to ancient Greek philosophy. Everything is about interrogating the good life. Yeah. What does the good life mean? Aristotle, what is Aristotle, what is? Because yeah. everybody gets caught up in the continental, you know, 17th, 18th century philosophy. But if you go back, it was the Greek philosophy is very folk. What is the good life? What is friendship? What is love? What is manly love? What is romantic love? The Bible, you could so when you read these things, you think, well, so what so people just suddenly became self-interested and like narcissistic, yet we've had wars throughout human history. You go to war with Helena Troy, you go to war with a beautiful woman, right? So you you kidnap some king's woman and you're gonna risk your whole people's lives because you're like in love, right? That's not a millennial. So I've always viewed that as kind of it's glib, which about you know there was an expression about the Gilded Age, right, where everything was fake and, and beautiful, and I think we live in like the glib age, where everybody's got to take oh millennials are narcissistic, oh boomers are you know and then you have a glib take on boomers, you have a glib glib take you have like have like a hot take on everything, yeah, but it's glib, and if you interrogate it with any kind of intellectual work you realize that it, it falters and fails. Yeah. That's kind of why we, we sort of stay away from takes. I think we're, we're sort of, everything is kind of more autobiographical or auto fiction, I think is sort of like a big thing. Now it's sort of a way for, for younger people to sort of stay away from, from hot takes and, you know, giving these sort of like under investigated, under interrogated, over generalized opinions that you sort of see, I mean, I see it kind of on all sides and, you know, and you're, you're a hundred percent right because, you know, you read a book like atomized by Michelle Hoelbeck. I don't, I think that guy did the best sort of, uh, diagnosis on the sort of boomer narcissism of the Woodstock generation. But a lot of it is, is media mediated as well. Like a, a lot of the way in which we be, we exist within the world or we see ourselves or we identify is through, is through the way we're reflected in media representation and the technology itself. So I do think that, you know, as technology becomes a greater part of our lives, we are sort of seeing this almost like, you know, syncretic, non-Marxist, communist, like, blob that we're all sort of uh, entangled in, and you can lose yourself in it. I think the, the younger generation, the one thing I will say about Gen Z is that they're almost so lost in it that it's become their kind of metaphysics as well. So technology is almost like a spirituality. Well, they, this is one thing I'll say generationally that generally is pretty true. And we got lucky. So Gen X, I think had the best of both worlds because we totally grew up, we came up. Love you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, And we didn't have internet porn when we were in our teens you know, you had to really look for it in your early 20s and you would get like one little pixelated image and it was it was a different world. So we have all the benefits of technology, 
but our brains weren't fully merged with the Borg. And the younger they are, the more the brains are merged with the Borg. And that's kind of like Gen Z, where online life is real life to them now. Whereas with Gen Z, and it's become less true. I mean, if you say things on the internet, you can lose your real job. So it isn't the partition that we tried to keep was ruined by Gen Z because there was a general vibe that, hey, like if you call somebody's employer, you are like internet ethos when I was, you know, 20, whatever, when we when we were really online, if you called someone's employer over something on the internet, you were a pariah. Mm-hmm. You would be run off every forum. You better never show your face in the world. It was the idea like, no, man, people are coming in, blowing off a little bit of steam. The internet is not real life. And then now it's like, well, the internet can be real life for people like my age and older. But if you're Gen Z, the internet is real life. The internet is your life where you go, you leave each other. And now you're texting each other on social media, cyberbullying like never ends. So if you're like in high school now, the, the worst, lowest form of bully can just bully you all day now because now everybody's gossiping on social media, texting each other pictures of each other all the time. It's a, it's a rough it's, it's a rough time for them, I think, the gens. I feel bad for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, I agree with you. Uh, that That's that's really, really interesting. I, I'm like, you know, sort of like older I get, the more I observe this stuff as like almost trying to take a neutral view. But, you know, you talked a lot about early online stuff. You know, you had early forums like the Fora. I don't know if you know about that. And they had sallow forums and there was a whole sort of like uh, in, intellectual blog uh, movement of the early 2000s. And something that people get that gets brought up is like Substack is kind of like the revitalization of, of early internet blog culture where you can actually write a concise, uh, have an actual message. It is sort of this independent journalism as the trust in these uh, mainstream institutions. It just, you know, it's the approval rating of, of these uh, institutions just so low. So do you think Substack is kind of like a, a, has some sort of potential to to reignite that? Okay, so when I started the internet, we had Hotmail, and it was like magic. So, wait, what? You could just instantly communicate? Because we didn't have cell phones back then, so you couldn't text each other. That's the thing that, that if you're not, if you weren't there, it's really hard to understand where, well, why would you email each other? Why wouldn't you text each other? Well, because texting didn't really come around until... I don't know, maybe I was 28, 29 ish. You had to kind of call or you wonder if a person was home. You, you, it was a very different thing. And then you had the golden kind of age of blogging because it was pre social media and, and pre centralized, monopolized social media platforms where you had a blog. If somebody pissed you off, you wrote about your blog, why they pissed you off. And they wrote a reply. It was called yeah. fisking, there was even the term based on some guy. So you would end at the paragraph and then you would like write your like thing, like, how dare you, you motherfucker, you know, da, 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 da. and then they would like fisk you and it'd be, and then it would go like viral amongst other blogs. And everybody's like, but you had to actually be able to communicate. So there was a, a, a real barrier to entry there. You had to have, you didn't have to be a genius, but you had to have some level of uh, intellectual capacity and at least able to mm. throw together a few paragraphs so the level of quality was higher. Then social media came around and it was at the time beautiful. 
they were like, oh yeah, come on our site, link to your blogs and we'll send all these new people to your site. Yeah. So I, it was like whoosh, a surge. <laughs> and then after they got everybody on social, they go, oh yeah. So if you link to your blog, like we're not going to send anybody there. We're going to deboost it in the algorithm so that you get no clicks. So people became reliant on Facebook to bring new people to their sites. And then Facebook's like, oh, thanks for bringing all your readers to our website. But ha ha ha, you know, link to your stuff. Good luck. We're going to do everything we can to keep people off the page. And then we, end, you know, we end up in the social media thing where everybody's talking to each other on social media, what, whether that's YouTube, whatever various ones you have. And then, because haven't you ever noticed there are huge YouTubers and then they'll millions of followers, they'll tweet and they got, nobody cares, right? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Right. So people really is a, a segregated kind of centralized audience. And then Substack is trying to bring a return to the long form style of writing. I don't know. I think I think that's over. I think podcasting is where everybody went for the long form content. Mm. I don't see. I mean, writing can always make a resurgence, but podcasting overtook the blogging. So now you do a you know reaction or a comment. So if somebody on one podcast insults you, you do your podcast. So I, I don't know that sub Substack is going to bring a, a renaissance necessarily of long form writing. I think long form writing is, I don't want to ever call anything dead because then you'll get fatal laugh at you and it'll come back with a vengeance, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's a niche it's a valuable niche because people who like to read long form articles are always going to be the people with that, that intelligence, the influence in the world. They're always going to be lever movers. So if you want to, if you actually want to leverage your ideas, then long form writing is, is going to be the way to do it because you're always going to, you're going to cream skim, right? So when you do long form writing, you're going to lose maybe 90% of your audience, but the 10% left is going to be the cream of cream of the crop, so to speak, and in every kind of regard. Yeah. So that that's what it'll be. It'll be sort of elite opinion will be influenced by, and I mean real elite, not this fake neoliberal elite where they're <laughs> yeah yeah they're just desperate and grasping. Like the New Republic used to be on the White House. It was the magazine of the intelligentsia. Foreign policy was the, and they don't. The Atlantic's losing ten million dollars a year. So I mean, the real <laughs> elite will be predominantly reading substats, but it'll still be niche. Yeah. Yeah. I think things are just becoming more niche in general. So I, I think, but you are right that if you want to, if you're talking actual influence, because you look at a friend made an observation, he's like, you look at a guy like Adam Schiff, he's got like 2.3 million Twitter followers, but nobody likes his tweets like he doesn't actually have any vibrational power like there's but you'll you'll see some esoteric uh, account or somebody creating these weird substacks with like cryptid letters and copy pasta and you know it'll generate this like giant massive mimetic uh like energy thing or like vibe shift or whatever you want to call it so you just have like these different levels which is one of the things i noticed like and you actually pointed out to this earlier is like not all of these platforms trans cross translate to each other. Sometimes you're going to have a lot more success on one than you're going to have on another. I know a guy's got like 200,000 YouTube subscribers and is, he's got like a thousand Twitter followers. I mean, it's not, 
Um, it doesn't always equal success the, or, or even translate to making long form content. Like you have to actually be able to do that. Like you have to have some sort of experience. You have to have some sort of technical or intellectual capacity to do that. Cause you see a lot of these guys, they're just, they're total posters, you know, and they sit there online, but they, they could never do that. They can't sustain that. So yeah, you bring up a good point, which is there's still a disconnect between people with really something to say and the people in power. So in a way, it's like Adam Schiff is way more, an order of magnitude more powerful than me, but I'm more influential than him. Yeah, exactly. But, but so he's, but he's clearly got more power than I am. There's no question, but nobody's going to Adam Schiff. Like, I wonder what Adam Schiff like thinks about the world, right? I wonder <laughs> what's like new in the world and I should kind of check out. So there still is that disconnect between like, why do these people have the power and we don't? <laughs> and that's why people are such conspiracy theorists, because when you interrogate that question with any level of intensity, you you start to kind of go in dark places. Like, yeah, really, these people are boring. They're cardboard cutouts. They have no, they have no vibe. They would be invisible if they walked in any kind of room. They don't write books. They couldn't start a po- They couldn't review a book. How in the fuck do they have all the power? Right? It has to be evil. There has to be some kind of like shadowy, demonic, Illuminati thing behind. That's where people. That's yeah. why you it leads people these things because it doesn't make sense otherwise. Yeah. Well. Like, to- yeah, no, exactly. But to me, it's it, it's somewhere in the middle. It's not this shadowy, demonic, uh, you know, group of people in some back room, like pulling these levers, be like, I'm going to put the most boring, banal motherfucker up there. It's really people who are sort of the beneficiaries of this neoliberal machinic autonomism that selects for me- mediocrity over meritocracy and sort of like elevates people who will just sort of like parrot the machinic unconscious of what is of what's trying to animate itself. And and I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but to me, it's almost like, you know, in this whole neoliberal paradigm, whatever you want to call it, late capitals, I don't want to use leftist terms because I don't like that. I want a new word for neoliberalism. I don't want to use old words because people fuck it up too much. But for whatever shit thing we have right now, it doesn't select for merit. It 100% does it because you see all this vibrational energy behind all this populist political stuff. And it literally, like, how does Kamala Harris get up there? Like, how do these people get up there? And, you know, it, it, it just doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to people. So I think they, they believe that there's some group, but really it's a complete network, cybernetic network of things that are selecting for these and optimizing themselves for these outcomes, you know? Could be. Yeah. That's why I'm just saying though, people, that's why they go down that narrative structure because everybody wants a narrative structure that tightly binds things to get things together. And I used to be dismissive of those narrative structures, but you start, it it does seem kind of weird. I mean, four officers committed suicide because of January 6th, you know, like a, yeah, that is really weird. You're just like, I don't know, man, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to get banned from anything. So I'll, I I always kind of say like, I'm a share crop. Cause I think that's probably why I'd probably come off more mellow than most conservatives because 
I've accepted my status as a second class citizen. And I'm kind of like a sharecropper for the tech oligarchs. And so I don't want to upset my my um, overlords, but four police officers killed themselves in the January 6th thing that was less crazy than riots that we saw all summer. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. But but there it's weird. It's yeah. weird for sure. But you can't you can't say anything more than that or you'll be nuked. Oh, totally. Um, I don't know. Another kind of random question. I was going to ask, um, I, I know in Gorilla Mindset, you talk a lot about like attention and focus. And um, do you think like, I don't, I don't know. Do you think that like ADHD is like kind of fake, like, or caused by like the internet or like, why, why is it so like, common now? And like, what do you think of like, people taking Adderall, like so many people. <laughs> yeah, every, every, everybody uses, everybody uses Adderall. Now, have you ever watched um, about the family in Western Virginia, the, the wild, wild West? Yeah. Oh, and he shakes opioids and he goes, this is a Boone County mating call. It's like a vial of opioids. Yeah. And I feel like when you mentioned Adderall, I feel like that's like the new like mating call. If you were dating like Gen Z girls, it'd be like, oh, I got a whole <laughs> fresh bottle of Adderall and just start shaking it around and like the Pied Piper. You'll be, you know, you'll be followed all, all around. That's amazing. So the, the, there, there is a, a, a real Adderall problem. And I think, again, I think a lot of it goes back to because everything's post. It's like post hipsterism, hipsterism where people haven't evolved into a new sort of structure and everybody thinks you have to be like intense. It's okay to be, people have been bored and lazy all the time, but they forgot what it's like to be bored. So again, before a smartphone, Gen X, you know, shout out, you just wouldn't have, there'd just be like nothing going on, just like nothing. And it would kind of suck to be bored, but then you would have like an idea pop in and be like, oh, this is an interesting thing. So a lot of ideas and a lot of magic comes out through boredom, through nothing happening. There's a great article on leadership called Solitude and Leadership, where they talk about the need to be bored, the need to be alone. But I've noticed even with my own kids, quality time, or rather quantity time is quality time. The magic is nothing happens for 90 minutes and then magic happens. The magic is not waiting for something to happen, not logging in. Because what these smartphones do and our ability to just hyper zone in on whatever we're into. So whether people are into kinky pornography or YouTube this, you can find whatever thing that you want to do and just zoom right in there. And then you become a mindless consumer. Whereas before you would walk through a bookstore and find books you never would have found before. Just random. Just oh, I'm bored, right? Used to be like, oh, I'm. What do you guys? What do you guys want to do? Oh, I'm just kind of bored, you know. All right, well, let's just go to like Barnes and Noble. Okay, you go to Barnes and Noble, you get a latte. You sort of like walk around. You find things you never find, and ev- but everything in life was like that. Like, oh, do you guys want to like go out? Okay, well, we better find like a cool bar. You can't just go on Yelp, or you can't just go on wherever and get 
teleported to this thing that is in a way niche, but also limiting. And that it wires your brain differently. This has been shown, especially with pornography, how people who are Gen Z aren't usually addicted because your brain was more developed before you found it. And when you're younger and you find it sooner, because I, this stuff like this blows me away where and it shows how you can become out of touch so quickly, five, 10 years, and you're out of touch with the next generation. There are girls who are like, guys, don't hit on me. And I'm like, look, man, if you want to like fish or compliment, you're a very attractive person, you know, here's your compliment, you know, like, I don't know what you're doing telling me this, if that's what you need. No, they don't like it. Re- then I would see, I'd be like, no. And, th- and that's because porn has made men feel inadequate because, you know, they feel like, oh, well, I don't have what that person has in the, in the films. And then women feel inadequate because of social media. So basically everybody, because again, in our society, you can't talk about men unless you're denigrating them and you can only talk about women a certain way. But like women, I know they'll turn 19 and they're, they're talking about all those plastic surgery they need fillers. I need my lips to look a certain way. When I was growing up, like you didn't know anybody who had a boob job. That that was just not the realm. And now in Beverly Hills, they get them their summer off. They're going into high school boob jobs. Now you're like, what, what is happening in the world? So then women compare themselves to a false idealized version of what a woman looks like, even though these women don't look like that in, in real life. And then men compare themselves to an idealized version of a pornographic man who can just, you know, go for hours and, and everything else. And then they expect <laughs> that women, first of all, they presume that the woman actually is enjoying herself and not realizing, you no, know, like she's being paid to be there. And then their brains hammered become, into oblivion. Why? <laughs> yeah. And then these men now have all these premature anxiety problems, premature ejaculate. It's, it's absurd. So I thought everybody was just sort of making this up and it, it really isn't. So they, they have it. So I'm not a Luddite. I mean, I, I certainly believe in technology, but with people, it should be cut off for people of a certain age where you just don't have it or it's limited in some way because it, it is shaping your mind in a way that is, appears to me universally bad. I, I'm not seeing the, the great, because I love technology. I, I've always loved it. I've always been somewhat of an early adopter. But at some point, you just have to empirically look around and be like, okay, I think it's gone a little bit too far. I yeah. think people are getting yeah, it yeah. a little bit too early. And I don't know if which we can't really shut down. We can't really shut it down right now. I'm not sure what we're going to do other than grouse about it. But, I, yeah, I do feel bad for all these mm. kids because they have problems now in, in their own ways. Everybody's got their own issues, but they're the, either driven by – the images of Instagram or the images of, you know, internet pornography. Right. Yeah, no, totally. I, it's kind of funny because, um, you know, just sort of like looking around, like people are, are sort of coming up with all these ways to intellectual intellectualize all these technocratic solutions to everything. And, you know, there's all this data that sort of suggests that like, you know, you can be happier if you have X, Y, Z thing, but it's like, have you empirically looked around the world? Are we in a better place for this now? But I don't think people know um, the best way to sort of, because, you know, technology is a tool. It, it's, it's very, uh, it's something that we can all use. It's something that, that, 
is that we could all read that that can be sort of beneficial to us, but I think people are using it the wrong way. Not to say that you can change it, like Amazon's not going anywhere, these things are not going anywhere, but we can sort of change our internal relationship to uh, technology itself. And and to so I don't know if, if there's a way to, to do that, if there's any advice when it comes to that. It's technology and processed food. Once once they become hit mass adoption, you oh yeah yeah it's both is along the same lines. It's been shown with Bonobos, every kind of like study. If you think of us as just a little bit more advanced than our you know our Bonobo cousins, you you know if you take them away from the natural food supply and you put them near a dumpster where they have food scraps, they're going to eat Doritos over bananas and they're going to eat themselves into obesity, which is what people have done. And that's where, you know, where the technology has impacted people too. You don't, you don't seem, you, you don't, music, for example, guys used to strum a guitar. That's why you had this great music from the seventies and eighties that I know is good. Like I know, I know music is, I know that music used to be better, at least rock and roll. I like EDM too, but I know that music used to be better objectively, not because I grew up and I listened to Led Zeppelin, but because I can, my 34 year old millennial wife is like, wow, this is a incredible. Like this is what music used to sound like. Yeah, honey, that, that was like a normal thing. You have all these great bands, different genres, swamp rock, you name it. That has been lost because now you're on your phone, right? So instead of strumming around on the internet or rather strumming around a guitar, you're strumming around the internet. It's changed that way for everybody. So I think it's been, I don't know. I, I hate to say that technology, the advancement that we that we've had is is universally bad. Yeah. But there is something about an age cutoff, and there's no solution. Uh, on, the only solution is at the micro level. The only solution is at the gorilla mindset level. The only solution is realizing, like, oh hey, so if I'm a 19 year old guy who's addicted to internet porn, then I just need to like get treatment or not watch it. You know, like not go on the internet and blame. You know, because now there's all this anti-Semitism around that. It's like going on Twitter and creating anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about pornography as if Jewish people aren't, you know, it's like you read, but that's the solution. Their solution is to go on the internet and be like, okay, who can I blame for my lack of self-control or my inability to like auto-regulate my life? Okay, well, you know, insert group. So it's either the evil white man and if you're, you know, critical race theory or if it's the anti-Semitism, if you're a people of a different flavor, but it's all the same, which is we have these problems. Like everybody's got these problems going on the internet and venting, venting about it, it's not going to change it. Blaming the system and the structures, which is what everyone wants to do, isn't going to fix it. You just realize, okay, here's me and my micro little world. Here are the problems that like I have here are solutions that I can find for the problems I can have. But otherwise, you know, we can grouse all day about these issues and it won't change. It yeah. can only change at the micro level. But then of course, as we talked about earlier with, you know, when you drill down to the micro at some point you get so small that it gets big again. <laughs> so if the micro level people realize, Oh yeah, I do have like a problem with this stuff. Then the industries are going to change or the industries will go away or other industries will adapt. And then you'll have social wide change, but it always is going to start at the micro level. Um, do you um, do you know Deanna Havas? Mm -mm. 
Oh, I thought you were friends. Oh, with okay. Her. No, no, never mind. Oh, okay. I might have been some somebody else. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that that's that's really interesting. I'm. Uh, you know, this is this has been a really fascinating thing. I feel like we're sort of getting to see that, like uh, the the real philosophy side of, of Mike Cernovich, and uh, you know, th- this is a this is really um, this is really something else. Not to, um, I I don't know. I'm like looking at her right now, seeing if she's yeah. going to ask a question. I don't know if I'm going to ask a question. You can ask me. Oh yeah. yeah. So um, what? So you like gardening? I've gotten into that. Yeah. Okay. So do you, do you like to take plant based? Uh, what do you think? Do you think these psychedelics are uh, brought here by aliens? Okay. So I've thoughts. Um, so one is I don't play any kind of anthogens at all. What I like about gardening is it keeps me out of like trouble because you have these things you have to like tend to. And it's interesting enough and enough is going on that my ADHD riddled brain can always make, cause there's always something going on. Oh yeah. It's a little dry here. This plant doesn't look so good. What's going on with you? Oh, I'm going to plant another one here. Cause we have, you know, hummingbirds and I want more hummingbirds. So it keeps you entertained and out of trouble, which by the way, is so much of mindset is you can't always, like I call it redirection energy. So if you have all this like energy, you can't just stop it, but you can divert it. So if you're somebody who like, oh, I get distracted on my phone a lot. Well, great, plant a garden. That'll keep you distracted in a much healthier way. Because as you know, with gardening, there's always something going on. You have predators taking it. You know, I had a cutworm infiltration. I was like waking up every night at 11 p.m. with a flashlight. Where are these cutworms? Why are these solutions not working? So that's the gardening aspect. The I didn't invent this idea. I think it was Graham Hancock who said it. But so I think that mushroom psilocybin, psilocybin, so I always say that wrong. Psilocybin is brain alien consciousness. <laughs> so it just it isn't a plant. It isn't a fungi. It isn't an any. It's alien consciousness that was either left by people who were on the planet and left and vanished. Cause that's why you're like, Oh, time stopped. And I'm seeing things. Cause by the way, and this is again, why I can't even talk about these substances with people who haven't experienced them. You see things you couldn't have made up. Like I, I would be a billionaire if I could just, if I had access to the stuff that I have access to with plants, I, w- I would be the the leading animator in the world. I would be the leading, you know, you name it in the world because you have access to unlimited knowledge. So, oh, you're just hallucinating. I wish, please, you know, I wish, or that, I wish that were it. But no, I don't want to be a billionaire. But anyway, that's a digression. It's just, I can't talk to people who haven't experienced it because they, the way they describe it just doesn't comport with what you experience. So when you're, you're on a substance, you're like, well, time stops. Yeah, you feel quote-unquote high. Okay, well, high, why do you feel high? We feel like you're flying. Why do you feel like you're flying? Oh, because probably people flew off the planet, right? Mm. And they left either a a direct consciousness or a library of knowledge or a way to access our own consciousness, whatever. I don't know. But that's why you do it. Like, I feel like I was out of body. So when you, again, to use a word that I feel like I'm, I'm overusing, interrogate, when you 
reflect on the experience. You're like, yeah, I felt like whoosh. I felt like something was taken out of me. So the first time I did 5-MeO DMT, mm-hmm. I went in with no preparation, no shamanic counseling, the worst possible way you can do the substances. Because you, I was, oh my God, I'm dying. So like I fought my way out of it. And then, you know, the lessons you take are a little bit different. But yeah, you feel like you're being ripped through space and time. Well, where does that come from? Why do we feel a certain way? Why do you feel like you're flying through space, right? What do we, why? The, and you think about with most of the compounds, most of the stuff with time stops. Well, okay, so maybe time's an illusion, right? Because clearly it, we know what it's like to experience time. We know what it's like to experience infinity or whatever we imagine infinity to be. So what, you know, what is that? Well, maybe your brain's just plugging in to the infinite universe May, may I, I had actually one tweet that went viral and I got a lot of hate for it, but it, mm-hmm. I don't care. It was seen over a million times. I said, if you want to see aliens, don't look for UFOs. Aliens are here. And then I put a little like mushroom, mushroom emoji. <laughs> and that thing went like crazy viral. Because if you hate me, if you hate me, you're like, this guy's crazy. And if you're like your people who maybe are indifferent to me, you're like, well, no, actually, there's something to that. You know, like, what do you guys think? And it's like a conversation starter. So that's that's my take on the alien thing. People think we were created by aliens, spliced together DNA. There's a hundred different uh, theories about it, but I, I've know I've done enough. I've done enough to know that like we're not alone, and they're probably with us all the time, and we're just experiencing one frequency at any given moment. Mm. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um, yeah, so no, that's, that's actually a really, that's, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm sort of like wondering how do you, um, how do you deal with all of the negativity that comes your way? Like what, what are the best ways to process that? Cause I have some friends who are, you know, they're younger and they're sort of building up their personal like profiles. Me personally, I just don't give a shit. I just have really thick skin. People say stuff and I just, you know, it sort of rolls off my back. How do you, uh, how, what sort of advice do you have for people who want to say things that are uh, true or esoteric or confrontational or uh, that so that they can keep going and keep persisting through this kind of, uh, you know, it's, it through, it's almost like an exorcism, you know, not everyone's cut out, cut out for it to put themselves through that. Yeah. There are a lot of different mind hacks and it depends that people process things intellectually, emotionally, intellectually, what people have to understand with the hater comment, because my, my favorite thing was people like, Oh, you know, I, I want to start a podcast, but I'm afraid I'm going to get hate. And I'm like, Oh, so you think people are actually going to listen to you. That's interesting. Good luck with that. Your first hater comment, you're like, wow, I actually had somebody listen to my shitty podcast and now they're yelling at me. Holy shit, like I've arrived. So if you just look at it intellectually, first of all, you're lucky to have haters. You're, just, you're lucky because that means you're, you're actually being listened to. And then where people go wrong is they think the haters are speaking for a large number of people, but it's just like customer service. I go to a coffee shop. I have a good experience. I don't go on the internet and say, oh, I just went to the coffee shop and had a great experience. What a wonderful time, right? But they get my order wrong. I wait too long. I'm in a bad mood. 
so then I interpret the situation in the most uncharitable way. I'm on the internet blasting this, right? That's fundamentally how you have to internalize and intellectualize the hater comments. Yeah, they're customer complaints, bro. Oh, you, <laughs> oh you're going to get a hater comment. Why don't you go work customer service at fucking J. Crew, bro? Why don't you listen to customers bitch at you all day because the order was wrong or they were drunk when they made it so they think that you stole their order or that they're trying to scam free shit. Go and, and make $12 an hour working for fucking J. Crew at a call center. And then tell me, oh, people in the area being mean to me. Yeah, they're in, they're calling me names. Oh, life. Uh, go do a customer service shop there, motherfucker. <laughs> and then come tell me how traumatic it is that, you know, people on the Internet are like being mean to you. So that's kind of the, the emotional side of it. It's like, dude, go work a real job then, man, which is shitty and sucks. It's terrible. And I've worked them. And thank God I don't have to work those anymore. Go be a lawyer. Ooh, you got a high status job. Great. So you can get yelled at by people called a shyster. People <laughs> accusing you of like overbilling them, complaining that the bills are too high, but they like call you every day. And you're like, I mean, I bill for my time and you're calling me every day. It's not like, like you're calling me. What am I like? What am I supposed to do here? Not take your call. Oh, then they'll complain that you don't take the call. So a lot of it is just that people who are in creative and this, again, goes back to the stories we tell ourselves, right? In mindset work, you learn that everything about your life is a story that you've told yourself. So people have told them a story. Well, I'm a creator. Therefore, I'm more, like, delicate. No, if people are mean to you, it sucks. Like, it's not fun to be to have people be mean to you for the most part. Some of us, like me or you, handle it better. But it's not like I wake up and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to have, like, 100 people today tell me that I'm, like, a piece of shit. Yay, let's – get the coffee brewing and, you know, look at that. What are you going to work another job then, man? Go, you know, go be a bartender somewhere. Go wait. I waited tables. You think the internet's hard? Go wait tables at Applebee's and have people come in and then, and then tell me how, Oh, you're, you're just so hurt. I'm just so sensitive. Cause that's how creative. No, you know, it isn't. So that, that to me is to use the term a privilege it's a privilege if you get to make totally. a living from your intellectual work from A to B, ideas to implementation to money, even if it's not a lot of money, that's the greatest gift in the world. And that's always going to come totally. with a little bit of friction. No, no, I, I feel that way. I'm like, you know, just, just at that level now, which is completely insane to me. It's like, well, people actually will pay to listen to my insane retarded crap i'm just like uh it's kind of it's kind of interesting it, it's fascinating i have a question do you believe in angels i believe in angels demons all the weird shit that i never believed in that the the anacrons like yeah i believe in all that stuff they're, they're just interdimensional beings mm. and our minds are in the world around us every everywhere all the time Whatever, whether they're angels or demons or aliens or energy, I don't know. But, oh, yeah, all that. That's amazing. Have you seen any? Have you been visited? Well, when you're on the medicine, you know, you're met with presences, right? Like yeah. you're met yeah. with tormentors. They're just tormentors. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the ride. You know, I, yeah. I remember one, one, one experience on uh, ayahuasca was I get – I was just bathed in like glowing light and I felt like it was one hour of 
the most blissful, pleasurable experience that I could never imagine in <laughs> ever living on this world. And I thought, oh, man, this is going to be a good ride. Settling in. You, you know how it is once the medicine starts, to, you know, you lean into it a little bit you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a good one. And then psych. And then you're <laughs> being taunted, tormented. You know, we're going to kill you. You've been kidnapped, you know, <laughs> everything else. Yeah. So all in the same night. Yeah. All in the same night. Yeah, that's that's happened to me before. Not not as I've gotten older when I was younger. I've had some mushroom trips where I thought I saw Christ in my light bulb and I burned my eyesight out looking into it screaming and then it morphed into a demon and it's like you know you you become sort of like a mini demonologist when you go through these things and pretty soon you're like you know blind for a few days and you have no idea what the hell's going on and you know it's a it's a weird you know these sort of temporal worlds are strange you know and it's I would rather live in a world where I think demons are real and I think angels are sitting on my shoulder screaming at me, telling me what to do, than sort of live in this sterile, uh, you know, secular uh, world where everything has to be demythologized. You know, I, 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 I want to live in a place where it's like I'm in a religious, intoxicated stupor while I do everything. And and there's nothing anyone can tell me otherwise. That's why um, that's why I'm into this kind of stuff. You know, it's like it's a constant journey of exploration. And I think the more people lean into that, the better their lives are going to get. They're going to get objectively better. I you know I I just say it from personal experience. Yeah, there's certainly more interesting. There there if you're I was the the way like policy wise that I've always thought about is, you know, you have all these vets each, each day kill themselves and you have suicide. There ought to just be like a suicide hotline with a gram and a half of like really pure mushrooms. Cause a lot of people are like, <laughs> Oh, I did three and a half grams. And I'm like, Oh really? Okay. So you must've, maybe you didn't have the good stuff, but where it's like, okay, so you're going to kill yourself. Okay. Why don't you try this first? You know, why don't you just try this first? Cause you're going to kill yourself anyway. What's the worst that's going to happen, right? You, you're still going to like want to do that. And you wouldn't because once you've, once you've taken that journey, life is never boring after that. Cause you're yeah. thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> right. What? And I, you know, especially as I got older, like I'm somebody who, you know, I, I'm not in the false modest. Like I believe that I have life pretty much figured out, you, you know, and I can point to all the little, the boxes to check and everything the deeper you get down this, you're just like, I don't know, man. I don't know. What the fuck? Is it angels? Is it demons? Is it aliens? Is it aliens consciousness? Are they always here? Is it accessible in our mind? And our mind is hallucinating kind of what we're seeing. It's like a projection that we're seeing and the projection is coming out of us. I don't know, man. And I don't even like, I don't even care to argue about it. <laughs> I used to tell people now God's real. They go, well, yeah. I don't believe in God. Prove there's God. I don't care. You we don't believe, don't in, believe God. in God then. Yeah, I don't care. You know, I don't need to argue. It's not Reddit. Okay. You don't believe, <laughs> oh, you, you think I sound crazy. I don't, I just don't even care. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but that vibe, I never really had where I would want to like argue. But then I realized I'm just trying to impose my own intellectualization of all this onto you because I'm insecure about my own knowledge. Because why do I give a shit if you believe in God? Right. Why do I give a shit about anything you believe? 
unless it's sociopolitical where your vote can have consequences and there's a debate. Why do I give a shit if like you right now, you and your girlfriend right now think that that there's an angel right behind you? <laughs> Why in the world should I give a shit? What, what does that matter at all, right? I, right. You, does, it doesn't even matter because you realize that the more comfortable you become with your own self and your own view and your own ontology, the, the less you feel like you have to persuade the other person. Because when you realize we're all one, that's the spiritual component. The spiritual component is who are you trying to convince? You're trying to convince yourself. Because if you're just content, you, you don't need to convince anybody. Because you realize if I convince you, now I've convinced myself more. And it's really just a mirror of me directing my own insecurities and vulnerabilities and d- doubts onto you. And now I feel like I've resolved them. I, getting free from all of that certainly makes life really interesting. Getting free from the idea that like other people, how to, how to express that, right? The idea that if I treat you a certain way and then you treat me bad, I, I should treat you bad again because you don't deserve to be treated well. The freedom from that, the freedom from just being like, fine, you go be a piece of shit. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm not going to have boundaries. I'm not necessarily going to yeah. welcome you. But I don't have to treat you like shit because you, I can just be like, you got to be gone now. Whereas before you would think, well, I treated you well and you didn't. And now I have to to go after you kind of a certain way. No, like you're, you can still be, a, you can go live in hate and fear and that's fine. And I'm not going to go live in hate and fear with you, but I'm not going to be embroiled in that with you either. So you're just, you're free from having to control everyone. Cause that's what it is. It's your fundamental control, the retaliation. Like, why do I have to retaliate to teach you a lesson? Why do I have to teach anybody a lesson? <laughs> right. There's so much freedom when you just don't have to teach people a lesson. Anymore. No, I just cut them off. You know, I mean, that's what I do. I've had to just cut motherfuckers out. You know, I'm like, you know what? I don't have to teach you anything. I don't have to have a dialectic. All of that is dead anyway. I mean, it doesn't do anybody any good. It's like, you're just gone. You're gone. I I don't care. Uh, I mean, that's sometimes that's how you have to be with people. I mean, you know, it you can say it's unfortunate, but every time I've done that, I've never really regretted it. I've never really looked back and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be in my own little thought bubble and believe my misinformation. You go believe your misinformation. It doesn't really matter to me one way or another. So. All right, my friends, I got to get going to the yeah. back of the kids. One of them That's great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. This was great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Good to meet you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.